0: Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring.
1: Welcome back to There's No Business Like. Uh, I'm Josh Benson here in Marion, Illinois, rocking it out with my friend Kevin.
2: Kevin Maynard from Quad City Arts, splitting the border between Iowa and Illinois. Uh, Katie, not that splitting the border anywhere. Where are you at? (laughs)
3: Hey, Josh, Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts in Midland, Michigan. Smack dab in the middle of the state.
1: Brian Zelmer, Hey, Brian Zelmer from KU
4: Presents in Kutztown, Pennsylvania.
1: And the one that brings the party with us, Danielle.
0: Hey, guys, it's Danielle Van Hook from the Alton in McLean, Virginia.
1: Oh, guys, this week, I got a chance to sit down with Natalie Marrero, who is the executive director of Viver Brazil, the dance company, and I met her at the APAP conference In a meeting setting, um, her agent and I were set to meet and he's like, hey, why don't you just join me and a handful of other people for lunch? And as we were sitting there at lunch, she started talking about Vivo Brazil, not doing a a sales pitch or anything, just kind of talking about their outreach and stuff. And she was so passionate and electric about it that I immediately thought she has to be on our podcast. Like there was such an energy coming off of her as she talked about it because of how passionate she was and some of the time you automatically know that it's going to be something special whenever somebody
2: puts off that kind of an energy have any of you had that kind of an experience with someone i don't know that i can think of like one person in particular that that happens with but i know that every time in my life the people that i like sort of uh you know like just just want, want to become friends with like or that when i get really excited about are people who just sort of like let themselves go and let them be passionate about, like, whatever that is. And it could be something as incredible as, you know, like, that arts organization or something that I might find less mundane, like, you know, trains or something. Um, But I just – I love when people talk about the passion like that.
0: Well, but that is also, in the same time, like, why we love some of these conferences. And, like, of course, sometimes people are telling us about what they do and it's a sales pitch, but, like, it is thousands of people who, like, love the arts, like, who are just, like – if you – have nothing else to talk with somebody about. It's like, you probably know something adjacent to something that they're going to talk to you about for an hour. And, you know, like, I think sometimes like that's sort of like what brings us all together is that like, it might not be the same passion, but we like, all do have that fire
4: somewhere in us. I felt that way many times again, just like Danielle said, meeting people at a conference or what have you, but honestly getting to spend time with you guys last February um, meeting meeting all of you in person and, and hanging out with you guys, I felt it then.
3: Um, I had one of those magic moments too, Josh. And it's when I was introduced to, who is now a very dear friend of mine, Cindy Beth Davis Dykema, who was the executive director at the Playhouse at White Lake before me. Um, I had never worked at the theater, had never really, you know, seen much there, even though it was very close to home for me, and was introduced to her at an event. A friend of a friend said, oh, Cindy Beth needs a stage manager for this show introduced me and it was like lightning in a bottle. We hit it off right away. I went and stage managed um, my first ever professional summer stock show for her that summer. And then she brought me on as a house manager. And then little did I know, like she started planning my transition into her job (laughs) for about (laughs) 10 months later. Um, and yeah, and we have been dear friends and artistic collaborators ever since. She is incredibly passionate about theater for young audiences and directing. And so she would direct and I would produce during my time at the Playhouse. And yeah, it's one of those like friendships and artistic relationships that you can't really define. And I'm so grateful for it.
1: That's a, that's a beautiful example of why why the energy that someone puts off is so important. It's not just the words that you say, but it's, it's the way that you carry yourself. And it's the energy that you put off that is so integral to building relationships and networking and people being open to talk to you to begin with. But that energy that Natalie was putting off in that initial meeting, it carried over even into uh, whenever we were sitting down for the interview, Danielle and I were there um, and it was in uh, a room, a hotel room at uh, the Hilton at APAP. And Natalie walks in and immediately that same energy is just pouring out. And she looks over and she sees that neither Danielle or myself were wearing shoes at that time. She's like, oh, no shoes. This is going to be great. And and just brought that fire and brought that into the interview. And so I can't wait for you guys to hear it. And then let's chat after.
5: I'm Natalie Marrero. I'm the executive director at Viva Brazil Dance Company. We are a Los Angeles-based Afro-Brazilian dance company that really honors the ancestry of Afro-Brazilians and how the inspiration of Ancestry, what Ancestry is, how we can be rooted in that and create dance work, um, music, culture that is inspired by. And this is the organization's 26th year, Wow, 26 years young.
1: Let's start from the beginning. Before Viva Brazil Dance, how did you get interested in the arts and move into the arts to start?
5: Um, so I'm from the East Coast originally. My family's from Harlem on 125th, like right off 125th and Broadway. My dad's a musician. He used to be signed to Fania All-Stars or Fania, the label, which is known for Fania All-Stars, tiro Puente, Hector Level, a lot of this OG New York Salisero space. And I grew up with a father who is, is a cultural icon. He has a Latin Grammy. This is, there's no small feat, but never was able to live and raise his family with that. And growing up, my parents got a home in New Jersey. And so I was always in between New Jersey and New York. Jersey and New York, the suburbs, it was weird. New York, it was also weird and fantastic. And it was this, you know, a lot of people of color talk about I was not Latin enough or Puerto Rican enough to be here. I wasn't, you know, white enough to be here. And so I always was, as a young person, I feel like informed this not fitting in. And And also recognizing that I had to, in order to thrive, I'm using quotations, thrive in the world, I had to hide a part of myself and hide a part of who I was. And I watched my father do that. I don't know, without having the words, I have the words for it now, it's like, I don't want that for myself. I had always been the natural dancer in my family, trained at this place called Bale Hispanico, which is on 89th Street. It was founded by Tina Ramirez, and it was amazing to be in a place where I was dancing and, and all of these things and found a connection to myself, and was also something that was naturally easy for me. Once I went to college, my parents were like, that's cute that you like to dance, but like you got to do something else. So if you're going to go to college for dance, like you have to have a double major. I was like, great. How about urban studies? Right. I, that's what I did. <laughs> I was like, you didn't say what I had to do. You just said I had to do something what wasn't dance and was perhaps weren't practical. What was exciting about that? I've always been inquisitive and I've always loved history. And I always questioned why we do the things that we do so automatically. Like, why do we actually wait for a cross rock to to cross? Like, why? Like, what happened in us? So it's so ingrained in who we are. Even to this day, if you cross, someone might be like, it's not our time to go. Like, whatever. You know, so it's just a small example of just who I've always been. And also simultaneously, I'd started working for the mayor's office in New York under Mayor Bloomberg, the mayor's office to combat domestic violence. And so I was working in jails, detention centers, high schools, community organizations, just whomever wanted us facilitating seminars around what is abuse And what is a healthy life? And why perhaps people find themselves in these ultimately traumatic spaces? And at the same time, because in New York you can do everything at the same time. I was still dancing and I did go to the new school and was always questioning why art wasn't a part of that process. If we are talking about why someone might be abusive or might be abused, why are we not finding other practices that can perhaps soften the blow perhaps be healing and ultimately sort of the roundabout to your question of like why urban studies why was that interesting to me it's there was a lot of things about who I naturally am and the kind of inquisitive nature I have and also the things I was doing and the holes I felt like they were in making something successful. Because for me, even within my place as a leader, I think, and what what I'm doing right now, is this going to just help me sit here in a a space of glory? Or is this going to help me and help the company and the team and the communities we're working with and all these other stakeholders have a happier life? So that's Kind of that why. I guess now I have more language to understand what I just, like, felt. And my life has been guided a lot by, like, my intuition in a very weird way. It's just, I'm like, you know what? I think I should move to Los Angeles. I will. And that's how I got to L.A. I moved within a week. So <laughs> I'm assuming
1: moving within a week, you didn't have a job lined up.
5: No. No, I didn't. I didn't.
1: And so how did you then Shocking. land with, uh... right? Shocking. <laughs> with Viva Brazil?
5: Yeah, so also chance. So I was here in New York, dancing, teaching, working for the mayor's office. I did worked with both Mayor Bloomberg and de Blasio and was just very challenged that there was so much separation between all these things that I I was doing at the time and wanted everything to come together. So I thought, hmm, cuz I also just say it for the listeners, I'm 30 years young and I've been an executive director for 7 years. So I have always been looked at like you're really the one in charge are you sure? And I'm also five feet. At, I'll just give myself all the five like, <laughs> <of those> inches. <laughs> I'm sure, um, you know, don't let my platforms fool you. I'm very small human. So, you know, a lot of times I was in rooms and, and challenging others to give me positions of power, perhaps, and it just wasn't working. So one day I was at my my sister's and now brother-in-law's house on their couch. Like, Fuck all of this. God. am I doing like I don't want to be doing what I'm doing what I don't know what I want to be doing I just know it's not this thought hmm the only way people will take me seriously if I have a business degree and so also I was just wrapping up my master's at the new school in government policy and affairs I was Google searching and found Claremont Graduate University in Los Angeles County and they had and they still have this program it's a business program that has a focus on arts management arts management arts business And I thought, huh, that sounds like what I want to be doing. And then I read the the bio for this woman, Laura Zucker, who was the executive director of the then Arts Commission, the now L.A. County Department of Arts and Culture. She's pretty badass. That's the kind of stuff I want to be doing. So I guess the only way I can be like her and be my own version of her is to learn from her. And so I applied for the grad program on my phone. (laughs) like a true 20 something year old the next day was at my office in the mayor's office on the phone like hey i just applied and i'm at my job so i can't talk really loud but i think i'm a great candidate what are you guys gonna do for me because i gotta move across the country so what do you think are we gonna do it we ended up giving me like a one-time just you know true development person at heart got them to give me money to move out and that's how I got to L.A. So I did the program. It was about three or four semesters. And at the end of my sem- the last semester, I was like, I need to work for anybody. And I was very intentional. I don't want to be affiliated with dance. I'll do anything, but don't connect me with a dance company. Always. just. So I started doing a lot of arts education work. And one day, someone connected me with this this person named Alex Matthews, who used to be the executive director of Dance Resource Center. She now works at BAM, Brooklyn Academy of Music. And she said, you know, there's this company called Fivera Brazil. Been around LA for a while. They're like, they are one of the OGs of dance in LA. And she says, I just can't shake the feeling that you're going to really like them. I know you said you don't want to be associated with dance anymore. I'm not going to press you on this. She said, but they have a three month contract. It lines up with when you're gonna graduate. You just be a consultant. It'll be money and something on your resume. Great, love it. I'm looking for cash. That's, that's what I was like. I got a few more months where I can just get as much cash or experience as- as or both. Exactly, or both. I had a meeting at Linda's, who is one of the founders of the company, Her House with the former executive director who was a part-time managing director who the board just decided to make a full-time ed to you know shift this founder-led organization so i go in i start talking to him and he's like yeah i want you to write grants for us I'm like awesome would love to help you with your development totally i was like where's your strategic plan what kind of programming are you going to do in like two to three years and as i'm talking I see. And I hadn't met Linda at the time. Her head like peers out because she is like in the, the office was in the sunroom that connects to the kitchen. She's like, who are you talking to in there? And she's like trying so hard to not come into the conversation and, you know, allow Peter to have the autonomy to interview me or whatever. And she couldn't help herself. She's like, I love you. Who are you? How did you get into my house? <laughs> How did you get here? And Linda, if, if you, she's also, she's a powerhouse. She's a small, wonderful human, but she's got this like bright red hair and she's just so full of life and joy. And so it was funny. I was like. You know, trying to be professional, but also like, who are you, lady? Like, I mean, he called me to be here. I don't even know where I am. Had no idea I was sitting in her house. But long story short, they offered me a contract. It, it ended up, as opposed to three months being six months, great. It were, Yeah, exactly. I was like, and I'm going to go in Hawaii in the middle of this. It's going to be cute. Three months into the contract, for whatever reason, Peter left the company. He's also a writer and was at a time where he wanted to really lean into his writing practice. And the board turned around and said, Hey, Natalie, we've really liked working with you. Do you want to be our executive director? And I remember I just said, I'm going to consider it. Thank you. Well, when do you need to know? And I remember going home, like they just offered a 23 year old fresh out of college an executive director position to be clear out of college with m- several degrees, several, yeah, <laughs> several <laughs> masters, because one's not enough. And, and
1: and a lot of experience in community engagement and community response.
5: I appreciate you guys reminding me because at the time I think it was. Just... I was just thinking there's a version of this
0: story that sounds she was in the right place at the right time. Mm. And like things are just easy and lucky sometimes. Mm. But like
1: that you were you were in the right yeah. place at the right time with All of the background and all of the work that you had put in crying.
0: incredible amount of preparation. Yeah,
1: lots and lots of work. Thank you. History that all tied into the practice.
5: Yeah, yeah, yes. Very, very lucky and in the right place. And so I said, "Hell yeah, (laughs) I'll do this." And that's ultimately how I got to the company. I was. This is actually now my second time coming back as the executive director and. In the first three years of my tenure there, it was fantastic. I learned so much about Afro-Brazilian culture. Really, these anchors in Salvador Bahia, and Salvador Bahia as a place is incredibly significant because it has been, at one point, the entryway for enslaved Africans into South America. Something that is so beautiful in Salvador Bahia is how the origins of Afro-Brazilian people are really honored. You can, of course, see in the city and in the culture remnants of colonialism and oppression and also the resilience of people who are saying, fuck you, oppressors. And also, like, look at how beautiful we are, even in the hardest moments of that. And when I think about, you know, how I got back to the company now, and even then when I first was connected to the company and first offered the opportunity it was all of us took a risk on each other I think that a lot but I also think that it was like spirit and ancestors bringing us together because ultimately everything that Viva Brazil does is about honoring spirit a lot of times even at APAP this conference they're talking about how do we fix what we know doesn't work it's how about we look at the ancestral knowledge that exists a lot of times people are like old keys don't open new doors ancestral keys open every single door. And so much of life has been ignoring that fact. And I feel very honored that I, as a leader, can be young, inspire other people, you know, break understanding perhaps of who has the capacity to lead and what leadership looks like. And also I think about what legacies am I making sure get upheld and honored at every moment of what I do and show people how same we are. We're all the same, you know, and I think now we're all trying to get back to that.
1: I love the idea of the approach to change through ancestral knowledge and that it's it doesn't have to be a new idea. The, the concept of old keys don't open new doors focuses so much on the systemic, but to look at the ancestral, you bypass that systemic and go pre-systemic to bypass that systemic key that was not opening the new door and and go to the ancestral which focuses on the spirit and focuses on the soul and the people and and of course that's where the answer would be
0: wanted well, to take the metaphor a step forward the, the the old key wasn't designed to open a lot of doors exactly it was designed to open certain doors and so yeah
5: and I think the other thing too is ancestry, Was before, like what you're saying, all of these doors that were made for very specific reasons and very specific people. And ancestry was recreated and masked to survive so that there's a nimbleness in ancestry and in that knowledge that also is something that's like, why aren't we returning to? And I would also be remiss to say, you know, Salvador and a lot of, a lot of spaces around the world are not just inspired by Africans, but also the indigenous and what together they were able to create. And I would be remiss if I, you know, didn't say that.
1: So let's, let's kind of dive in and talk about the company and, and the work itself, um, which... At its root comes from everything we were just talking about. Exactly. Tell us a little bit about the company. Now that we know your story and all the hard work that went into you getting that job at the right time, but that you had an amazing base to be the right person to be there at the right time. Tell us about uh, the company itself. I mean, you said it's one of the OG dance companies of L.A. Yeah. Let's get into that a little bit more.
5: The company is 26 years young, founded by Linda Udine and Luis Badaro. I have the fortune of not just working with founders, but a husband and wife. Presents some interesting challenges and opportunities for sure. A little bit about how and why Bahia or Salvador, Uh, Luis Padaro is from Bahia. That's where he's born and raised, and they're actually both there right now. And Linda, interestingly enough, had a Fulbright. And from what I understand, the Fulbright was exploring, and I might be butchering this a bit, Ethiopian and Jewish dance. She was at UCLA World Arts and Cultures studying for her master's and somebody came and spoke at a class and talked about Salvador Bahia and Orisha dance and these masters there and something in her was like, huh, what's that about? Spoke with her dean about perhaps going there because at the time there was no one in the U.S. studying um, in Salvador, Bahia, and, and there's really not much travel from what I understand either at the time. And if the company is 26 years young, this is probably 30 years ago, the dean or whomever said to her, if you're gonna do this, you need to learn the language. I'm not sending you with a translator. Like, you're gonna have to, like, lean in here and just dive she did i think if she was supposed to be there a few weeks she stayed there a few months this year i had the honor of going to bahia and salvador with her and it is apparent how important she is there and what and how immersed i mean most people who don't know who she is that she's a white woman who grew up in danville illinois would have no idea just because of the respect that people have for her and just her commitment to the culture So she went, traveled, met her husband in Los Angeles. They started a company of young people. It was actually students. So to think about now how we tour across the U.S., it makes makes a lot of sense because the company started as a essentially youth ensemble of sorts, working with young people inside of a school teaching these these uh, different forms of Afro-Brazilian dance and music and song, very much all a part of who we are in our performance work. And that ultimately became a company that started self-producing and over time has built its education programming. So to give this macro spiel of, you know, What Viver Brazil does programmatically. We have a weekly dance class that's free. It takes place at the Nate Holding Performing Arts Center, which is also a staple venue in mid city Los Angeles. We have what's called Celebrating Samba, it is a 45 minute I would say it's for all audiences, but a lot of times we perform this inside of schools and community organizations. It's an exploration of Afro-Brazilian culture, so it starts with orishas, and orishas are essentially deities, gods and goddesses of Afro-Brazilian religion, which is called the Condomble. From there, we... We have a narrator bring folks into Capoeira, Samba Jejoda, and Blanco Afro. And every time we have different costumes and joy and singing and, and all of the wonderful things that we are. And so we offer that for people who, you know, want to pay of course but we subsidize a lot of that so that especially a lot of times we'll get parents that reach out hey I have a hundred dollars and I would really love for you to perform in my you know child school and we're like we have a grant and we'll subsidize you how does that sound keep your hundred dollars and so that became an opportunity and that's through California Arts Council funding that we're able to do that year over year this year we're doing about 20 free celebrating samba shows We have our in-school residencies that, you know, are anywhere from 12 weeks to 10 weeks to five days, you know, and we're teaching dance and music and and for us we are a dance company but work very closely with music if we didn't have live music on the stage there's something's happening every year we bring folks to salvador bahia for a two-week immersion program called dancing at the source and the beginning of the day is like a dance music or song immersion and training then the second half is a cultural tour of salvador bahia looking at it through the lens of resilience resistance social justice We have a wonderful partner, her name is Paula Santos, who has been working with the company for its entire, in its entirety, and is really important, the lens that she understands her home in. And then we have Samba in the Streets. Samba in the Streets is our community program. We do that for free in Los Angeles every year in the South Los Angeles area. That is has always been, it's a predominantly African-American neighborhood in Los Angeles. And that has always been the center of our community and our work and our partnerships. And it is a free dance and drumming workshop for folks of all ages. It is deeply inspired by the Blanco Afro, which are parading organizations in Salvador Bahia that created this form out of resistance of a dictatorship. Um, Luis Palaro, one of our founders, is someone who's an originator of this form. A lot of the inspiration came from the civil rights movement here in the United States. The inspiration of black bodies simply standing in space and claiming what belongs to them their freedom, their justice, their liberation. We do and that. And that's the
1: base of this entire form.
5: Exactly. That's it, incredible. Is, it is the base of the entire form, which is, yes, it is incredible. So, that is what we do when we're not performing. So we have our in-school programming, our community class, Dancing at the Source, Samba in the streets, Celebrating Samba. And, of course, we are a dance company. That is who we are.
1: So it sounds like a large majority of the base of what the company does involves being within the community. Yes. Kind of immersed within the community. Yes. Um, to be a part of it. There's, you also mentioned that um, the, the social justice movement within Birmingham is what kind of inspired the dance form itself. Uh, but and then you guys have done some some work in Birmingham in residency capacity yes. and an immersive community capacity like that as well. Can you tell us about that a
5: little bit? Absolutely. Yeah, it's really beautiful. I will just start with how inspired by everybody. You know, a lot of times I think when we are struggling, even personally, if we take the race element out of it, everybody struggles. Everybody struggles. There is something about the world we live in that makes us feel like we're struggling alone when a lot of times we're, we're not actually all the time. We're not <laughs> everybody has their shit. <laughs> you know, we all have our shit. I have my shit too. And I think that it's really beautiful when, when we have glimmers of, Oh, someone else feels like this too. So what else can I do or what can we do together? So, so it is very beautiful that, you know, seeing what was happening in Alabama made folks in Brazil say, we can do something like this. civil rights movement in the States is one of many things that inspired young leaders in, in Salvador and Brazil and, and around the world, names that, you know, I don't even know. So in terms of the work and how we really got to Alabama, so we had started this program in Los Angeles with funding from the Department of Cultural Affairs there at the time Dance USA had come out with this Engaging Dance Audiences grant because they f- realized after so many years of study that one-year funding is just not enough. Huh. Never thought of that before, huh? So they thought, let's do multi-year funding because that's better for people. Yeah. Give me five-year funding next time. But it was great. <laughs> so we applied to do Samba in the Streets as a entry way to... Engagement, right? Because that was part of the grant requirements or the guidelines. We want to see how we can get more butts in seats, more people engaged by engaging them before or after in, the, in between. And that's ultimately what we do and what we've always done and always been a part of our DNA. And also, Linda Eudine has a very deep relationship with Dr. Joan Burroughs. Dr. Joan Burroughs is a foot soldier in the civil rights movement in Alabama. She's from Alabama. She formerly was the dean at Florida AMU in their dance department. And she herself, you know, even Cleo Parker Robinson, like these are their colleagues were talking about, these women who were creating research in dances of the diaspora before anyone cared to invite them into the room. Finally, because of this grand opportunity, Linda was like, we have to finally work with Dr. Burroughs. We have to formalize how integral we all are to each other and art making and community and uplift us in our stories great we applied for this funding and ultimately were awarded and it allowed us to formalize and and practice what that looked like so that first year was actually going to the 51st year of the Selma Bridge Crossing we were in Selma Lounge, and in the city of Birmingham but I forget off the top of my head what that county is but so we're in three uh, counties in Alabama touring the work and mainly doing community engagement and so Lowndes County is significant because that is the birthplace of the Black Panther Party before it went to the Bay. Um, What we did is we started it by going to schools and churches and community organizations, doing a free Samba in the Streets class, dance and or music, performing, celebrating Samba at a school or just straight up performing in the middle of a church service. It was insane how embraced we were, how deep. I mean, I never thought I'd love Alabama. I cried on the way home on the flight, like I have to leave now. But that was incredibly impactful. It was about two two weeks. We also crossed the Selma Bridge um, with our group of, of musicians that we had and dancers. And then what was beautiful is during that entire time we were finding, and again, Dr. Burroughs is incredibly steeped in her community. So understanding what schools had dancer music programs, so what students... Could participate, so part of what we were doing was training students and knowing, okay, well, we're going to be at this place on this day, or we're going to go to the bridge crossing. Are you guys going to? So you can join us, bring your stuff, and it became this really beautiful two weeks of exchange. And we were learning from them; they were learning from us. And to hear young people say, like, just say, "Wow, this looks like this thing that I know," or it reminds me of this thing that my Grandfather used to do. And wow, this is so amazing that I can cross the bridge and experience this kind of joy. And that was so like, whoa, what like otherworldly things did we just unleash? So this year is the fourth year that we're continuing that work. We um, received funding from the National Endowment for the Arts year over year to support this. The Alabama State um, Arts Council is the first year I believe that they've also supported this work as well. And now we'll be going to seven counties throughout Alabama. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you.
1: I want to ask you one little question from in there. You said, you know, I never thought I would ever miss Alabama whenever I had to leave. Yeah. What preconceived notion about A southern state like Alabama did you have that was then shattered and how was it shattered and and reconstructed through your
5: experience well I grew up in New York City so I was like what is what is the, the deep South look like it might be scary there I don't know you know I I think that was just really it like it's probably scary there am I gonna you know and and also there's a reality too I'm not just operating through space with Brazilian I'm operating with black Brazilians who speak Portuguese as a first language. We enter the space in a very specific way. I think there was a lot of those things of like safety and what kind of fun. and, And I knew that the experience would be profound because of course, because Dr. Burroughs and how connected she is to her community. But it just was one of those like, are they gonna like us? Like, are they going to like us or are we just crazy to talk about this connection between Brazil and Alabama?
0: But it's so much deeper than like. Yeah.
5: I mean, you really yeah.
0: are talking about safety. Yeah. Right. You know, it's, yeah. they kind of go hand in hand. Yeah. But there's, there's one way to make it feel light. And then
5: there's... Yeah. Another way to what could have been your reality. I'm so glad it wasn't. Yeah. No, that that is a, a part of it. And and ultimately there were certain moments where I could tell that it was like, oh, if I was here by myself, I might have a different experience. Because also some of the people who were helping us out knew their community. They knew where to go, where not to go. You know, and that was also very it was a very interesting is interesting dynamic to have for sure.
1: What at this point, you talked about strategic planning at this point, where is the strategic planning for Viver Brazil leading Yeah, in regards to one, the the program with Birmingham and two, the company as as a whole?
5: So sort of, as I mentioned earlier, I'm I'm now doing my second stint with the company. I, you know, my in-between time, I was, my first ED stint was between 2015 and 2018-19. But just the way the world works, I, Seemed to be back with Viva Brazil, and it was <laughs> it was interestingly enough only intended to be an interim ED role for 12 months while they did a national search. So ended up being the recruiter said, "I'm going to ask for forgiveness, not permission," in a board meeting, and she said, "I think the person who should have the job is in the room, and just keep saying no." so what's up, Natalie? So so her ancestors were working overtime. (laughs) They were. And I looked at her and I was like, girl, you did sideswipe me, but I will talk about this once I get an official offer. (laughs) (laughs) We will talk about this later. So it's interesting because so I, I give that little tidbit because I was very intentionally in the interim zone where I was like, i it's not my position anymore to vision for the company. And now it's official that, you know, as of as of November, that I am back as the executive director. And we've also named Veda Passos, our co-artistic director, who has for about 15 years been in very integral to the artistic legacy of the company, the training of our company, and is also a black buy-in woman. So in terms of where the strategic plan is it's not about the legitimacy of what we do and our work product. It's about who gets to see that. A big thing for me is really uplifting the visibility of the company, first and foremost.
1: Well, on, on a national level. Yes. And just in conversations I've had since you and I met, mm-hmm. you do have recognition within the Los Angeles community.
5: Yes. But nationally, nationally absolutely is your goal. Absolutely. And, yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful for all of just our family in L.A. that has always been like, we gotta catch you guys. And, this, you know, they've always have been our number one supporters. So, so yes, to absolutely, this national and continuing that momentum so that it's a really sustainable ecosystem. I want to be able to have our artists and really our co-artistic directors more in a process together. That's really important for me. Because a lot of times, and and a lot of companies feel this way, that it's like we're doing a show, so we have to piecemeal how we get to make. And I want to step away from that, especially because Vera Passos is in the process of talking about a new work. She's very inspired by herbalism in the orishas and how herbalism and that ancestral knowledge can actually help us through climate injustice. And so I just want to give, I want to throw money at Veta, not literally, but just so she can just be in that space. The other side of that is Veda just acquired a building in Salvador Bahia, and it is a five-story, it has, like, six bedrooms, there is a dance studio, she wants to build a music studio in it, like, she is looking to make this a cultural hub in Salvador Bahia, that also brings artists from around the world to be part of.
1: And there's an amazing thing about that is that your company is completely based within the culture from there. In turn, that culture is not being appropriated to the United States. It's being returned and reinvested within that community. Exactly. And to where it's a, a, a two way uh, reciprocity Absolutely. as opposed to just taking that culture and exporting it. You are also as a company reinvesting, and supporting where the culture came from, where the art form came from, and enriching the lives there through a reciprocity.
5: Absolutely. And starting an economic driver.
1: Absolutely.
0: That's not just an expense.
5: And that is for me, like strategically, that is one thing that is definitely going to be part of my legacy at the company. It just makes me so proud to be able to, you know, be back And, and we, Linda and I have joked a lot that this is like my coming out party of sorts, because I've actually been away from the company for so long. So I'm seeing colleagues I haven't seen in three plus years who like didn't even know I left (laughs) or they knew I left and came back. And they're like, wait, what? You know, then I'm a redhead. I was blonde before and then brunette before that. So they're (laughs) like, "Who, who are you today? You know, but to be able to also share how much the company has expanded and how much opportunity there is and. To like what you were saying, you know, there is this very circular reciprocal thing between us, how we operate, you know, and even a lot of our productions, everything's sourced in Salvador. I mean, the last time I was there, we spent days searching for fabric. Boy, oh boy, that's a hard, <laughs> it's a serious task, you know, but it is so beautiful to be able to bring that. And then when we perform, you know, we perform at Disney once a year. It's like when we, when you get to see that in these spaces it's very profound and it's an honor to be able to be obviously I'm, I'm more than a facilitator but ultimately a facilitator in making that happen so that is strategically you know where the company is going you know and, and I think a lot of us are still struggling maybe to get our artistic team back and that's definitely something a lot of folks have left the dance music space altogether. You know, so we're finding who are those people who want to be in our company, who are those teachers that we're going to invest in and what can I do to, in you know, invest in them to live and work in Los Angeles, but also bring them to Brazil and allow them to experience and understand the culture and how deep and it's full-bodied. It's a full-bodied experience.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Learning about the way that the company gives back and really seats itself within community as opposed to just a performing organization is wonderful and beautiful. And once again, Natalie, thank you for your time.
5: Thank you. It's a pleasure.
4: Josh, thanks for introducing us to Natalie. I really appreciated getting to know her. And you were right. I love her energy just from listening to her. Something
3: I really appreciated about Natalie's story was, Uh, the discussion you had around the intersection of opportunity and being well-prepared. So she had done all of this work, had explored all these different interests. And then when an opportunity presented itself, she was ready for it. And I think that's just a, a great example and a great lesson in being multifaceted, taking in everything that you can possibly learn from different perspectives and angles, taking on opportunities, you know, to do the arts education thing she did to, you know, take the risk going to graduate school. Like she, all of those things put her or prepared her for that moment where they were like, hey, you want to be an executive director? And at 23, um, it's just the perfect example of like the intersection of preparedness and opportunity. And you can't take advantage of opportunity unless you've done the work ahead of time.
1: And my, my favorite part about that is that she wasn't even cognizant of that. Everybody else could see it.
2: Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, props to Josh and Danielle for pointing that out and not just letting her kind of reside on that narrative of, you know, being right place, right, right time, you know, sort of being lucky. Cause I mean, she still tried to say like that she was lucky to have that opportunity. And I think Katie, you're right. Like it's the intersectionality of, you know, opportunity and being prepared because like she had the education, she had the experience and clearly like crazy smart. So, I mean, all of that came together because of all of those things. And she took that crazy jump and just decided, Hey, um, I don't want to be in New York anymore. I'm going to go to LA and then basically manifest destiny and makes it happen and does it and just dives right into it. Like that's, that's some, it's just impressive.
0: When listening to it again, it's not even right place, right time. It's, right place right time right questions right because that that meeting they weren't going into it being like i don't know maybe maybe this person is going to be our new executive director but like she had done she she knew what what questions to ask about whether or not she wanted to work for this organization and she was able to articulate those things in a way that somebody else who who was also also knew that those were the right questions we're there and we're able to, to make it happen and, and to really lift that up. And, you know, like, you know, we've been talking about where she did sort of try and like understate that it's like, we've talked about this a few times on this podcast about being women in this industry. And like, I think that that's a drum that I'm never going to stop beating is like, it's so easy to look and say like, yeah, I mean, sure. Like I did this and I did that, but like, um, I want to make sure that everybody who has a lady, colleague, friend, we're always reminding each other how amazing we are. And sometimes that looks like memes in the middle of the night. And other times, I mean, it is it does need to be in sort of a, things like this where we're saying, no, actually, you are the best and you are prepared in every way. And you're a delicate, perfect angel. But like it's sometimes it is it's so hard to be there, and to be in the moment and see it and. All of us, we need to just start lifting each other up every second that we can.
3: You know, in addition to the intersection of opportunity and preparedness, I want to also point out that like when Natalie first took on that role as an ED, she was only 23 years old and we've, the conversation about intergenerational leadership has become so in the forefront of everything we're doing in the industry right now, but that, you know, that was several years ago, but the leaders of that, the founders of that group are willing to take a chance on her as a young person and emerging talent to take on a a huge leadership role. Um, And she was willing to take that chance on herself. And I know, you know, I was an ED at 23, Kevin, same, Josh, you were an ED at 24. We've had similar experiences and it's scary, but folks in our realm or our areas were willing to take a chance on us and they are willing to take a chance on her. And I just think that it's a great example for us to look at today as we're having conversations about intergenerational leadership and how new people are coming into the field.
2: The other thing that I I really appreciate about this interview and really just her story and what they're doing with Viva Brazil is it really shows the impact that the arts can have. Um, It really shows the opportunities that, you know, sometimes you know, I think people outside of this industry and even sometimes inside of this industry, we sort of think about the arts as, you know, fun things that happen on stage and in a way to kill an afternoon or, but like, it really has a massive impact. I mean, we can talk about, you know, the impacts it has on a person or on the, the, uh, just the economics of it. Um, but in this instance, like taking that and really like uplifting a culture and like sort of having an impact and, and changing the world i mean honestly like that's that's really impressive and it's just a great highlight of like what the arts can actually do and what the arts are actually doing
0: and something that we didn't talk about a lot in the interview but that you're referencing kevin one of the ways that's like making that happen is a multi-year grant and and lots of people are doing multi-year grants but that needs to be something that's on the table as as a way to bring more people Um, into the industry and into these kind of spaces where they can achieve is by giving people more time. Time is in some ways a luxury Um, and uh, being able to do this work over years and being able to go back and do these other touches and not just be one event that you put all this time and energy into. That's valuable.
3: Yeah. The consistency of the programming that they offer and that a lot of it is free or subsidized or doesn't cost a lot for those residencies. um, It's an accessibility thing, right? Like by changing how we grant money and changing how we fund the arts, we remove barriers to participation, uh, in, in many different ways. And I was just like, how do you, how do you do that? How do you fund all that? Like, I want to know, tell me more. Uh, so really glad that, you know, you talked about that a little bit, Danielle.
2: One thing i sort of want to hone that down to is we, we focus a lot on like grant dollars and like multi-year grants, but as an individual who is donating to the arts, like we have the opportunities to do that as well. I'm like, we can make commitments to organizations to, you know, give them dollars monthly or give them dollars yearly. And obviously, like, you know, there's probably not, you know, too many of us on this screen who are, you know, giving thousands and thousands of dollars uh, annually to an organization, uh, but those little dollars do make a difference. And I know from an organization standpoint, you know, our $1,500 donations that come in are almost just, I mean, I would say just as important. I mean, it's building that relationship. It's just showing that commitment. So... Multi-year grants, obviously very important, but as an individual, you can make that same commitment.
4: And a lot of that goes to the way our models work, the way our programs were developed, because we're structuring things out, building things out and planning a year in advance most times for a lot of us. And um, we're not just looking to do a one-time thing. We're looking to do an ongoing new thing that is really affecting the community and it's bringing something important and that's not just a you know check a box it's not just a one time funding thing and in, and it takes time to build those programs too i love When she said funding for one year is not enough, that's true. But I also loved when she whispered into it, five years is even better than what (laughs) you're getting now, because that is true. Like the longer you know what's happening financially, the more you can focus on getting all the other parts in place and spending on making sure you're really doing the work that you need to do instead of just trying to figure out how am I going to pay for this?
0: I also want to talk about Viva Brazil and in the way that she is talking about the organization and the connections that they have to the ancestral land. I don't know that I've heard of an organization that is really living by its mission and is so mission-oriented to the extent that they are.
1: Yeah, the fact that they're purchasing a building in Brazil to create a cultural center and an arts center to redevelop cultural opportunities within that community that they are sourcing their art from is an amazing way for a company to be giving back. I'm glad you guys enjoyed and could feel her energy coming through in the interview. Uh, I had such a blast with this one and I'm, I'm so glad that we sat down because she had so many amazing points. Thank you guys for being here with me today. Thank you, Natalie and Viver Brazil um, for, for being a part of it and joining us with this podcast. We'll see you next time.
5: All
0: right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business like Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Ho Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslife.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? <laughs> I got it, don't worry. It is no businesslike.com. Do I sound out bus miss every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. She and
3: Beth are, Beth who took over for me, our dynamic duo, the only two staffers. Wait, is it Sarah
4: Beth and Beth?
3: It's Beth and Cindy Beth.
4: And what's your middle name?
3: Elizabeth. <laughs>
4: <laughs> the strangest <laughs> synchronicity of the universe right there. Wow. Yeah. What are the odds of that? That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs>